You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. We're in the Psalms again. We started this series called Summer Psalms last week. We're in the, the second um, Psalm, but not Psalm, the second Psalm. That We're actually going to be in the second Psalm next week, which is the second one in the series. So we're in Psalm 97 this morning. So if you have a Bible or on your device, open up to Psalm uh, 97. Um, before I get into it, I want to ask you a, a, an important question. This is a very important question. What is your favorite Christmas movie? Favorite? What's that? I saw a look the other day with a favorite movie, but I never heard of it. Okay. Anyone, anything, any Christmas movie, you just got to watch it every year. It's just Die Hard. Okay, yep. That's, that's now in the canon. Thanks to social media. Anything else? Any like sent, no sentimental ones? No, anybody watch the Hallmark Christmas movies? Into that, some people like, you know, just binge those. Um, they all have the same plot. Um, anyway, I don't know. It, you know, we grew up, you know, I'm sure you grew up watching like It's a Wonderful Life or Home Alone or any of those Charlie Brown Christmas. There's some classics, some classics. Now with Netflix, you can just watch all of the, you can just binge them all multiple times. Well, what is it that we love about a good Christmas movie? What do we love about it? They're, they're usually sweet, they're predictable, um, happy endings, likable characters usually. Even the bad guys in most of the Christmas movies really aren't that bad. They're just maybe misunderstood. Or they just need a little bit, you know, a bigger heart like the Grinch or just a little bit more Christmas spirit, as it were. Um, there's nothing that, you know, a little hot chocolate and a visit from Santa Claus won't cure. You know, the world of Christmas movies is a world that's maybe a little bit broken, but not very much. And so we like Christmas movies. They're a little bit of an escape. But what about the original Christmas story? I mean, it was really, it's really sweet seeing the kids reenact it. But if you think about it, the original, when it was actually happening for the first time, it probably wasn't that sweet. I mean, there's a baby and some animals which are cute, but animals also don't smell very nice. And you think about why the animals are there, because... Um, Poor Mary is giving birth to her first child, a young mom, scared, in the dark, with no you know, pain relief or any of the modern amenities that we associate with childbirth. It's pretty, uh, pretty stark um, what was actually taking place in that, on that first Christmas morning. The idea, though, is that the long-awaited Savior um, is about to be born. Um, to not, as we, as, as we heard, not as expected in a palace or in comfort or luxury, but to a working class family who was exposed to the elements. It was just not anything that anyone was expecting. What about the characters themselves? Were they likable? Were they likable? Well, Mary is pretty likable in the story. And the baby Jesus, pretty likable. Um, but then, you, if you remember, when she gets pregnant by the Holy Spirit, um, Joseph, her fiancé at the time, is about, he wants to divorce her quietly, which is the honorable thing to do, but he's still just, you know, he's about to call it off until the angel comes and says, no, it's okay. He, he's not exactly the hopeless romantic, you know, in the story. Um, and then, of course, there's King Herod, who's the real bad guy, and he's about as bad as you can get. He, he's not like, you know, he's not like Ebenezer Scrooge. He's more like Hitler. Like he actually goes on a rampage and has um, innocent children killed. Um, that's very dark. 
There's not, no Hallmark Christmas movies are, are about that aspect of the Christmas story. We often leave it out. But it, it actually happened. Because the Christmas story is not just a story, it's history. It's part of the story of the world. It's, it's part of the story of how light and hope broke into the darkness and gave us a reason to sing. Um, I was thinking about movies and, and Christmas movies, and I thought about a movie which is not on anybody's Christmas. It is not a Christmas movie. In fact, it's not a movie I recommend any of you watch because it might give you scary dreams, but it's a horror movie. Um, the, the movie Poltergeist from the 80s, anyone seen class, the classic genre? There's the, you know, the famous scene in that movie where the little girl, little, little five-year-old blonde girl is watching the TV screen, and there's a hand that comes out and sort of grabs her for, out of the TV, and sh she says, if you've seen the movie, they're here. It's kind of the spooky version of the Christmas, like of just the light just suddenly breaking into the darkness. That's what it was like on that first Christmas movie. He's here permanently, always and forever, not to do us harm, but to save us, to rescue us and give us joy. And it's good news. It's good news for the broken. It's good news for those living in darkness. It's good news for the poor. It's good news for the corrupt. This morning, we're going to look at the Christmas story, not from the Gospels, but we're going to look through the Psalms. It's a, what, I, you know, what you might call a Christmas psalm. You might not know that there are Christmas psalms. It's, it's actually not called a Christmas psalm. If you study it, it's a royal psalm, a psalm about the king, the coming king. The original context of Psalm 97 would have been to celebrate the reign and the rule and the victory of Israel's king in the time of David and following. But if you read it, read it carefully, there's so much of the image, imagery, so much of the history, so much of the characteristics of the king are going to transfer and translate over to the king, the king of kings who was born on that first Christmas day. Psalm 97, it's about the common king, the king who comes to earth, whose kingdom expands to fill every space. And when that happens, when the king comes, the righteous king, the just king, two things happen. One is evil people and evil is terrified. Evil people are terrified. And righteous people, faithful people, who are righteous and faithful by God's grace, rejoice. So Christmas invokes terror for some and singing for others. He has not. The king has not forgotten us. He's come to make everything right. So we're going to read Psalm 97 together, and then we'll pray. And I ask that as we do read this, that we, our hearts would be even more prepared uh, for the coming of the King. So let me read. I'm reading from the, the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the peoples see his glory. All who serve carved images, those who boast in worthless idols, will be put to shame. All the gods must worship him. Zion hears and is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are exalted above all the gods. 
You who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of his faithful ones. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous, gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use your perfect, unfailing word to come and do ministry in our hearts as your spirit illuminates and makes clear what you are saying through your word. Would you, Lord God, make us the people that you want to make us? Would you help us in the way that we need to be helped? Would you change us in the way that we need to be changed? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, let me just give you a little context of Psalm 97. We, we don't know exactly when it was written. Um, some manuscripts suggest that it was written during the time of King David. Um, we don't know, and it, it doesn't really matter a great deal because the message of this psalm is universal. The king that's being described in part are the kings of Israel, but as we said last week, none of the kings of Israel actually measured up to the standard, the ideal that's here. And only King Jesus, the king who was born in a manger, he is the one who measures up. This is about his rule. This is about his reign. The very first, there are the first three words of Psalm 97. The first three words are a summary of the gospel. Here they are. The Lord reigns. You want to, if anyone ever asks you that, what is the gospel? Here's a good summary. The Lord reigns. Let me explain what I mean. Let's break it down one at a time. The word the. The word the is, for you grammar fans, is a definite article. It is not any Lord who reigns. It's not just any random being. It is the Lord. The one Lord. The only Lord. He reigns. It is the Lord who created everything that is. The Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same Lord who promised to bless all of the nations through Abraham's offspring. It is that Lord. That Lord is the one Lord above all other kings, above all other rulers, above all other nations. The Lord reigns. The next word, Lord. Your English translation of the Bible may have that word in all capital letters. And there's a reason for that. Because the, the Hebrew word, translated Lord, is the personal name of God, the name Yahweh. It's the word that was so holy, the name so holy, that even today, um, uh, religious Jewish folks do not pronounce that word for fear of blasphemy, for fear of taking his name in vain. It is the personal name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. It is the name which roughly could be translated, I am, or I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He is the one Lord who owes his existence to no one or nothing. He has always existed before the beginning of time. He created all things. He fills all things. He holds everything together. He sustains us with his powerful word. He is the very definition of goodness and light and beauty. But he's also the one who wants you to know him who wants you to commune with him and to be in relationship with him. This Lord who loves his creatures by name. And then finally, the word reigns. The Lord, the coming king, is in total control of everything that happens. Everything in creation is subject to him. 
The wind and the waves obey his voice. Every molecule that is owes its existence to him. No living thing can go one step beyond the boundaries that he has set for it. No living thing can live one day longer, even one second longer than the time he has allotted for it. He reigns, not just for a few years until he dies and the next God comes to the throne. He reigns forever and ever and ever. And this is the victory song. The victory song of God's people in the days of Moses when they were led out of slavery and into the promised land. They sang these words, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There is no chance that he will die and that the next guy will come along and be a bad Lord. No, the Lord who is good, the Lord who is love, reigns forever and ever. The gospel in three words, the Lord reigns. And see, that gospel is an announcement. It's the announcement of the angels. It's an invitation for you and for me and people everywhere, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in countries that you've never heard of, to come and worship him. Not everybody, of course, will respond to that invitation, but it still stands. And I want to remind you, then, of the words of the angels that we've already heard this morning of the first Christmas. Here, here it is, and I want you to see the parallel between what we're reading in Psalm 97 and what the angels sang on that first Christmas night. They sang these words, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Let me read Psalm 97, verse 1 again. See if you see the similarity. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. The king is here. Let everybody throw a party and celebrate. That is the message that the angels had on that first night. The Lord reigns. Let everyone celebrate. Now, I said that the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, the Lord reigns, is an invitation to all people, you and me included, and everybody that lives, to worship him. But not everyone wants to worship him. There are people who hear the good news, hear the invitation of the angels. They don't want to come. They don't receive it as good news. They don't see, th hear it and think, oh, this is hopeful. This is sweet. They either believe that it's not true or they believe that it's bad news for various reasons. There are two kinds of people who would hear the message of Christmas, the gospel that the Lord reigns, and think, this is not good news. Two kinds of people. First kind of people are those who are unrighteous, and then the second kind of people are those who are idolaters or idol worshipers. Let's talk about the unrighteous first. In verse 2, we hear God is, is not entirely approachable. He is not puppy dogs and, and rainbows. There is a holiness and a, a majesty about him and mystery that surrounds him. He reveals himself here as a cloud, as darkness. God is majestic. We cannot, in our human finiteness, in our human unholiness, we can't fully examine him. We can't grasp him. But see, clouds have two purposes in Scripture as an image. For the righteous, for God's people, the cloud is a sign of blessing. It's the source of rain. It's the, the cloud that led God's people through the desert where there is no rain. There are no, not normally any clouds in the sky, and God appears as a cloud, a source of relief, refuge, provision, water. 
The psalm, um, this one, was written before the coming of Jesus. And, and, and the cloud is also a symbol, see, for the unrighteous of, of hiddenness, the hiddenness of God to those who do not understand, that don't have eyes to see. There, there, there is a darkness, a hiddenness that cannot be fully investigated without the intervention of God himself. The, the, those who, God's people before the coming of Jesus, they were living according to and hoping according to the promises that the king would come. The Messiah, the rescuer would come. So they weren't totally in the dark, but they were sort of walking by candlelight, as, if it, as it were. Um, and we looked at this last week. Here's the, the repetition. They were following the God who is righteous and just. Verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation, the twin pillars of his throne. We looked at Psalm 89 last week that said that exact thing, and here it is again. And see, that's good news. It's good news for those who are hungry for his righteousness and justice. It's bad news for, for those people who have adopted some other st standard of good and evil. Those who have their own measuring stick, their own spirit level, their own idea of what is and isn't good. So in verse 2, God surrounded by clouds in total darkness. That's how he guided his people through the wilderness during the day. And at night, if you, know, if you remember this from Sunday school, how did he guide his people? With what? With fire. And we see fire in verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes. Again, fire, just like the clouds, has a dual purpose. It's both a blessing and a punishment. For the righteous, fire provides warmth, comfort, light in the cold night. It cleanses, it purifies. For the unrighteous, fire is destructive. It destroys. Everybody who sees himself or herself or, or they, they, as the standard of good and evil, I get to decide for me what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Or I've somehow participated in or have set up an entire system or an entire philosophy or an entire religion that defines good and evil apart from how God defines it. We, those folks are in danger not of being comforted by the fire, but of being destroyed by it. The lightning and the thunder in verse 4 are also warning signs of the destruction that will come on those who are unrighteous. It's, it's images of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember when we looked at that in Genesis. You might wonder, who are the unrighteous people today that are in danger of being destroyed by the fire? These warnings, see, aren't meant to be labels and weapons for the people that we, you know, the people we don't like. They're meant to be warnings for us. Warnings for ourselves, that because we are often tempted to move the goalposts of good and evil, to justify what we want to do anyway. Sometimes we exchange God's definitions and God's standards of good and evil for whole systems that benefit us instead of glorifying God. You know, you think about this, church folks can fall into this as well. Um, you know, 100 years ago, if we were here, maybe the thing that we'd be talking about is how church folks used the Bible even to justify horrific things, horrific treatment of indigenous people and, 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 and women and other vulnerable people. And, and, and we might think, oh, well, we've moved on. That was our blind spot. That was our sin back then. But what about today? There are other things that we do. 
Uh, there were other things that we, we, other blind spots that we have because our human hearts, our minds, we are very good at inventing ways to sin, inventing structures and systems that justify and protect our sin. You know, we pervert justice for people and communities today in the name of all sorts of things. Maybe it's sexual freedom. Maybe it's unlimited access to pornography. Maybe it's our love for cheap stuff, cheap entertainment. And that's what we do instead of hungering or thirsting for righteousness. We crave things that enslave us. And sometimes we crave things that enslave other people. The unrighteous. Christmas is bad news. But the second group of people for whom the gospel of the Lord reigns is bad news are those who cling to idols. Those who cling to idols. These are the functional gods, the things that we run to sort of by default to make us feel safe to provide. Some people look to nature. This psalm sets us right. Because a lot of people back in the day, we don't talk about this as much anymore, um, but people would worship powerful, imposing things in nature. For example, mountains. People worship, a lot of people worship mountains. They saw worship mountains as godlike. Mountains are so imposing. They're the biggest thing that we can picture in our environment. And yet, what do the mountains do? In the presence of God, they melt into tiny puddles of wax as soon as God steps on the scene. Um, if you remember part of the story when Mary is pregnant with Jesus and she goes to visit her cousin who is also pregnant further along than she is. And what happens as soon as Mary, with Jesus in her womb, um, gets close to Elizabeth, her cousin who has John the Baptist, in her womb. John the Baptist starts jumping up and down and kicking and having a party. Like, like that's not something that's natural, right? That can't happen unless what Mary was carrying, who Mary was carrying inside of her womb was the God of the universe, the very one who makes mountains melt. To worship the mountains, to worship say, the stars, would be a bit like, you know, falling in love with a photograph on a dating app and going no further. It, you, you see, the created things are meant to not be so objects of worship in the, of themselves, but they're meant to point to the one who created them. It's his beauty. It's his glory, it's his power that the mountains and the stars and our DNA, and all of that points to him. And so that's the message of verse 7. Anyone who decides to serve and to worship the created things instead of the creators will end up looking like fools because all of those things were created to worship God in the first place. Who were the idolaters, the idol worshipers in the time of Jesus? They were the people who chose their power and position over coming to see Jesus for themselves. King Herod, the classic example. The savior of the world, the king of the Jews, is born to a poor family in a poor town. The town of Nazareth was not, you know, no, nothing good is meant to come from that place. And then he grows up to, what does he do? He, he gets close to people with bad reps. He eats with sinners 
and prostitutes. And the good people are like, nah, I'm not going to have anything to do with this guy because he's clearly no good. And yet this Lord is the Lord who reigns, the Lord of the universe, not King Herod. Not whatever you and I are chasing or hoping will save us. Jesus, and Jesus only, the one who gets close to the broken, has the power to save you, to heal you, to bless you, and to keep you until the day that you die and meet him. Every person who has ever lived, everyone will one day stand face to face with the Lord of the manger, the one who reigns. And if you're there clinging to an idol instead of trusting in him, then it's not good news. But the message of Christmas is good news. The Lord reigns. It is good news for those with humble hearts and eyes to see who come giving gifts, who come giving him the worship that he so deserves. It's amazing. It's wonderful news for those who are being saved. And the next part of the psalm gives us these three reasons to sing. We can sing because the Lord is just, the Lord is exalted, and the Lord saves. Let me go through those one at a time. Verse 8, the Lord who reigns is just. He reigns from Zion. Zion is the kind of symbolic hub of God's people, the, the capital city of God's kingdom, if you like. Um, and uh, they are the ones who hear the angels singing the Lord reigns. And, or sorry, and, they, and then they break out in song as well. Um, remember that last week we said that the gospel is, is good news for those who cannot and will not find justice anywhere else but in him. The poor, the oppressed, the people with no money, the people with no lawyer to argue their case, no one to defend their cause, no doctor to heal them, no one except the God of the universe. They are the ones who flock to Jesus because they have nowhere else to go. The only one, you see, who is not swayed by human power. He's not swayed by human power. He already has all of the power. The only one who is not covetous, covetous of human possessions because he already owns everything. The only one who needs no human praise because he's, he lives in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are constantly 24-7 praising one another. Needs no human praise. And therefore, God, the, the God who reigns, is free to give justice to the oppressed, to champion the weak. Because even if we are financially rich today, we are still spiritually poor and broken and hopeless. And we come to a God who draws near to the poor and the broken and the hopeless. His judgments are always just. If you today are covered in the blood of Jesus, then there is no chance that you will go and stand in the presence of God and he will say to you, mm, sorry, you didn't quite tithe enough. Remember that extra sausage you ate when you thought no one saw it? I did. Not good enough. There is no chance that you will hear those words from God. That is why it is good news that God is totally just. He will not move the goalposts because the goalposts are a person, a person who lived and who died and lives again in history. And anyone who puts their faith and their trust and their confidence in him will be saved. End of story. Good news 
for those of us who so desperately need a rescue. He's just. Second bit of good news, he is exalted. What does that mean? We sing that sometimes in our songs. He's the most high over all the earth, exalted above all gods. Why is that good news? Well, it means that if you've been justified by God, if you've been made right by God, then you don't have to go anywhere else. He is the end of your searching because he is the highest, the farthest, the most, the best that there is. There's nothing beyond him. It's not like, I, you know, I'm trying to think of an analogy here, like I don't play many video games. I used to when I was a kid, but there was always like, you always, you know, you, you, you do battle with, you know, a, a boss dude and you're like, oh, is he the last one? Or is there another one? Now see, God is the most high. He's the last boss, if you like. There's nothing beyond him. And if he brings you in, if you have communion with him, if you have peace with him, then you're done. You have reached the end of your searching because he is the highest one there is. There's no one else to appease. There's, there's no more mountain to climb. You have reached your destination. You are a poor sinner and you have found refuge in him. Think of all the news stories and imagery we have of floodwaters right now. If you've been to the Riverland or you've seen pictures, you see the water just is rising and rising. There's that picture of that, that tree that has all the signs of the past year's flood crests on it. I'm going, how high is it going to get? You see, God is most high, meaning that if you are standing on the rock of Christ, there is absolutely no way that the floodwaters will reach you. You are completely safe. He is the most high, and that is the best news there is. Finally, verse 10, the Lord reigns is good news because it means that he rescues everyone who belongs to him. This verse starts off, you who love the Lord hate evil. What is evil? What's any rival to God's reign? The Lord is the one who can protect you and rescue you from evil and evildoers, and he will. He's the one who can protect you. It doesn't mean that life will be pain-free, trouble-free, worry-free, but it does mean that the serpent of Eden, that death itself, ultimately has no power over you. None at all, if you're in Christ. Your circumstances do not define you he defines you. And so we will grieve in this life the evil within ourselves and the evil and injustice that we face in the world. But we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope that one day Jesus himself, the king himself, with his own hand, he still has physical hands, guys, he will wipe the tears from your face. That is a promise that is guaranteed. And so when we grieve in this life, when we grieve loss, and I know this season of Christmas time brings up all kinds of feelings of grief and loss and sadness, and yet the Lord reigns, death does not. The Lord reigns, Satan does not. The Lord reigns, sickness and decay does not. That is what we hold on to in this time. That is the gospel, that the Lord reigns even over death and darkness. He's just, he's exalted, he saves. Therefore, we can sing in the dark. We can sing in the dark, which is what happened the night Jesus was born. Look at verse 11. I love this. I want to show you something. Verse 11, it says, light dawns for the righteous in the CSB. In your translation, it might see, say light is sown in the darkness. That's actually the, the literal meaning of the Hebrew. Is It's a, a verb that refers to scattering seeds on the ground, light is sown. It's a poetic image. 
Um, here's how I picture it. Uh, the, the night was pretty clear. Um, uh, and just like the other night, I was looking up outside my house, and even in the, with the light of the suburbs all around, I could still see hundreds, if not thousands, of stars. Those of you who have spent time camp camping out in, in uh, remote places, you, you've probably looked up and seen tens of thousands of stars, and it's, a, it's, it's such a, a wonderful experience. Now imagine for a moment if each one of those stars that you see was to transform into the voice of an angel. I think that's what he has in mind here. Light being sown, and that, so, that light that is sown springs up into songs of praise, into voices that celebrate the coming of the king. That's what it was like for the shepherds on that night. Just like at the dawn of creation, light broke into the darkness. The darkness does not over understand it, but the darkness will never overcome it. Those of us with humble, teachable hearts are then filled with joy. People use the word joy a lot at Christmas. We're going to sing joy to the world in just a moment, but, you know, without Jesus who reigns, without his kingdom of justice and righteousness, joy is something that you would have to manufacture. You would have to gin it up inside of yourself. You'd have to find the silver linings in the midst of brokenness and sorrow. It would all be on your shoulders. And yet for his faithful ones, for all those who are upright in heart, the light and the joy that starts off as just a tiny seed explodes into an everlasting garden. There is always enough light, always enough joy. And it is a gift to you. You don't have to Work it up on your own, and it's just a little taste of heaven. The last command of the psalm, it's, it's the most important one here, and it follows on from verse 1. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Now again in verse 12, be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. See, there's a gladness that's not, that's not for everybody. It's, it's reserved for a select few, the righteous, the women and the men he's chosen to be his people. Christmas is a time that everybody, we, well, we want to lose the, the cynicism and embrace the joy that's meant to be normal. And that's how it's actually meant to be. You know, if this Christmas for you is heavy with sadness and grief, and I, and I know that it is, then, then here's where joy comes. It is holding on to those three words, the words of good news, the Lord reigns. All of the goodness that he promised is true. All of the sadness is coming untrue. Evil, sickness, pain, all of these are, are real, but they're temporary. And one day, the light of the gospel will blossom to such a size, such an extent, that anything and everything standing against the joy of God's reign will melt into nothing. Christmas does not cancel out the sadness just because it's Christmas, at least not yet. But it's a promise that comfort is here and comfort is coming. The baby in the manger, the one who at one time was a single cell in the side of his mother, is the Lord who reigns with perfect justice, is the Lord who will wipe the tears from your eyes. So let's learn to sing in the dark. 
it's not an accident that um, all of our favorite Christmas movies tend to feature singing. Um, and maybe except Die Hard. I don't know if there's singing in that one. But, but most of them feature singing in a big way. Uh, one of our family favorites, Elf. Like singing is, is like critical to the plot. If you've never seen it, I won't spoil it for you. But the song that is so central to the plot of the movie that turns everything um, for the good is a song that's not actually good news. It's a song about a guy who keeps lists of people who are good and people who are bad. You know the one. Our hero, the real hero, the Lord who reigns, he has that list of the righteous and the unrighteous. And you know what he's done for the righteous? He's taken the list of unrighteousness, of sin and shame and sorrow, and he's nailed it to his own cross. He doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't look at that list and go, okay, who's naughty, who's nice? He looks at the cross. He looks at Jesus, the one who reigns, and says, you're included. You're in the family. You're forgiven. You're saved. You're mine. That's the message of Christmas, friends. The Lord reigns. Today is the day, even if it's the first time you've ever considered this, you can come right where you are and bow before Jesus. It is the best decision you will ever make. He is the baby in the manger. He is the Lord who reigns. He's a mighty warrior who defeated hell and death and the grave for you so that you can be with him forever. The Lord reigns. So let's believe that it's true again today. And let's get busy singing in the dark. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the message of Christmas. Thank you for the joy that comes to the world, but specifically to those who you've adopted in, as your own. God, we thank you for, that we are yours, that we're in your family by grace and grace alone. God, would you help us to be full of that joy, even if we're facing just great sorrow and pain. Lord, would you bring us comfort? Would you help us to love and comfort one another? As we come to the table this morning, would we be comforted again with the truth that you reign and death does not, that you are eternal and that pain is temporary? God, we thank you for the table. We thank you for your broken body and your blood this morning. And we give you all the praise that you deserve in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.